This episode of Intelligent Medicine is brought to you by Healthy Aging, providing you with the unique energy support of Pure NT Factor. NT Factor is the only nutritional formula clinically proven to reduce fatigue, whatever the cause, whether it be age, illness, or just being run down. NT Factor from Nutritional Therapeutics repairs damaged cells and restores healthy bacteria in your digestive tract. Clinical trials have shown NT Factor reduces fatigue by almost half, and it even reverses some symptoms of aging. I've been taking NT Factor for years with a 45-day money-back guarantee of nothing to lose. To order, call 800-982-9158. That's 800-982-9158. Or go to ntfactor.com. That's ntfactor.com. Welcome to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman. Today, we're going to take an opportunity to talk to our colleagues across the pond in the UK. They're from the Alliance for Natural Health International. Uh, They are frequent contributors to Intelligent Medicine, and uh, they've got a very very interesting perspective on what's going on with uh, COVID-19 and what's going on with uh, the overall health situation over there in the UK and in Europe. Uh, it's Rob Furkirk. Uh, Rob is the founder, executive, and scientific director of the Alliance for Natural Health International, ANH uh, International. Uh, along with uh, his sidekick, Melanie Aldridge, who is the executive coordinator for Alliance for Natural Health International. Uh, So welcome to Intelligent Medicine. Pleasure having you guys back. Nice talking to you. Where are we we speaking to you from? Where are you located? Well, we're we're actually in our office because if you have uh, urgent reason to be in your office and that's where all your equipment uh, and technology is, you can still legally do it in the UK, believe it or not. So we're in our office in Chilworth, which is a little village just outside of Guildford in Surrey, which is about um, 30 miles uh, away from London, south. Uh, that's a, that's a nice part of uh, an area, sort of a, a, a an exurb of uh, London, right? It's a, it's a pretty area. It's, it's 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 outside of London. It's Surrey, but it's an area called the Surrey Hills. And obviously, um, for anyone who knows us, they'll know that we're very keen cyclists. And the Surrey Hills is a particularly good area for cycling as well. <laughs> yeah, and as, as am I. And I kind of envy you those uh, country roads in, in England, although I'm not sure I wouldn't be going the wrong way on your roads. I'd have to get used to the whole idea of driving on the left. It's kind of weird. We've, we've got 25 percenters that when you're over, Ron, we'll, we'll come and do a few 25 percenters. They are, they are vicious. Oh, you'd be 25% incline? Yeah. I've been practicing on the hills in New Jersey, and, you know, I'm talking, you know, maybe uh, a 10% incline is, uh, you know, and maybe, uh, you know, a couple of thousand feet of uh, climbing and descending. But, uh, yeah, I'm training. I'm training, getting ready. Of course, nobody can go anywhere, so it's all moot. Uh, what's going on with you guys there? You know, I see, uh, you know, pictures of uh, your prime minister, Boris Johnson, with the crazy hair. They're not letting people in to get haircuts over there. The lockdown is that complete? 
No, no haircuts. So, so a few of us have um, have had a chat with um, Bezos and have uh, got various uh, pieces of equipment through Amazon that allow us to do what Boris Johnson seems to not be able to do. And uh, so we're keeping our hair a little bit streamlined. But for me, I need to do that because I'm on a bicycle and I can't afford to interfere with the uh, wind resistance too much. Exactly, because of the streamlining, right? Because it might slow you down, uh, you know, a little bit. Uh, okay. So, I mean, really, is the, is the lockdown that profound over there? Because, you know, we hear accounts of, uh, you know, the very, very communicable form of COVID-19 uh, that is uh, now rampant uh, in the UK, uh, and there are more draconian measures of lockdown. What's the situation? Look, it's, it's, it is, um, obviously the, the, the issue right now is that the EU is making decisions. Um, Angela Merkel has just, uh, signed off today a decision that will trip up, um, really, uh, uh, inability for anyone from the UK, any resident from the UK to actually step foot on, on the continent in a bid to try and keep, um, the, so-called, uh, you know, South African, Brazilian variants that, 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 uh, yes, are, uh, much more transmissible. The, the, the bottom line is if they're more transmissible and they can get more easily to vulnerable populations, mm-hmm. and we start to see increased mortality. When you really look at the data on virulence, obviously it's coming through. There's always a delay between transmission. And just for, and for definition purposes, you know, I think some people confer, uh, confuse the term virulence. Virulence means how sick you get with it, and it's distinct from how more how likely you are to get it. Correct? Correct. Absolutely. So, so the the bottom line is that the you know RNA viruses generally are much more stable than DNA viruses like mm-hmm. um, you know, influenza, for example. Mm-hmm. So we, we had seen, uh, you know, several thousand mutations already with, with SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, and uh, very few of these, well, none really until the UK, South African, you know, and Brazilian variants came to the fore, um, see, seem to have much change in function. So, yes, these things are going to mutate all the time. Most of the mutations are have, have no effect. They don't alter the rate of transmission. Right. Or they don't alter how sick people get when they're infected. The change here is that, yes, people uh, are transmitting it much more readily. So mm-hmm. if you look at the, you know, the basic reproductive rate and the, more importantly, the effective reproductive rate, the, um, you know, the R number, the R number has been steadily creeping up. But right. If you then look at the fact that our view on that R number is based on largely on PCR tests. Um, right, which can be tests. inaccurate, yeah. Yes, and it was very interesting that um, yesterday the World Health Organization finally updated it, its advisory, its guidance on PCR tests, and they've done two things that we've been shouting about for months. And finally, you know, the science gets to them i think the science becomes so overwhelming they have to do something about it but it's disappointing how they've dealt with these two areas and and they really relate to the um the 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 ct the 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 threshold cycles within the pcr test so the number of times you are amplifying whatever 
sequence of um, DNA because you've transcribed the RNA to DNA so you can measure it as DNA. It's been and, criticized um, as too sensitive, in other words, uh, that, that it, it yes. may pick up the, some errant uh, infinitesimal particles that are not really diagnostic of an infection. Correct. So you can you can take a fragment of um, of the virus that has no potential to work as a virus that is able to transmit. Let's rem remember that viruses aren't organisms as such. So they they are essentially RNA or DNA um, vectors that sit in a little protein coat that can travel around in bodies, in the air, in waterways, etc. And um, but but obviously they need to be intact to be able to work properly. So if you have just broken bits of fragment mm -hmm. and you are just finding that little bit of the spike protein or the little bit of the membrane protein different pcr tests are looking for different sequences on the virus it says hello we found them but you know in essence the the most pcr tests will carry on amplifying round about 45 times and they at the end of that maximum number of cycles, if they've given you a, a, a positive result, they say, yes, it's a positive test. Now, the person who's just been tested gets told they're positive, yeah. when in fact, what they really need to know, the science is now fairly clear. If you um, are testing positive when the PCR has run more than about 30 cycles, the chances are you're not going to have infective virus in mm -hmm. you you're going to be having fragments that have no so, so the test really shouldn't be just binary it should be qualitative in effect in other words you know do you have a lot of particles maybe meeting a threshold where it's more likely you're infected versus this uh infinitesimal traces that uh, make it less likely that you're infected correct so you, you never saw the problem early on when most PCR testing before it moved to sort of mass community testing was done in hospital environments with very high viral loads. So it's dead accurate there. When, when, the, when the prevalence is high, PCR testing, even with where you, you know, don't have 100% specificity, which is the case, is going to be pretty accurate. Sounds but like Bayes' theorem is uh, rearing its ugly head it's, here. It's all, it's all Bayes' theorem. But, but hey, WHO has got its head around Bayes' theorem. What they haven't done is said, when you're communicating to the public and your CT value is, say, over 30, please tell them that there's a dirty great big question mark over whether this is a true mm -hmm. positive test. Our view is that anyone who's so-called test positive with a CT value greater than 30 should at least have a second test. That should be the very least that should, mm -hmm. should be done. And secondly, to force those people into isolation on the grounds of a CT value over 30 and therefore have other kind of knock-on collateral impacts on their life relating to their job, their ability mm -hmm. to put food on the table, that doesn't make good sense. Yep. That is not intelligent medicine. That, that's along the lines of the case-edemic uh, uh, theme, right? Which is that uh, perhaps uh, we are exaggerating uh, the prevalence of this uh, and the seriousness of this and thus uh, invoking uh, lockdowns, uh, loneliness, uh, suicide, uh, poverty, uh, addiction, and so on. Yeah, yeah. And, and what what you what happens when you have 
uh, a system with mass community testing that isn't specific enough. In other words, it's not determining the, the specific subpopulations of people who really do have high viral loads, who really need early intervention as possible. You're spreading that resource, your limited healthcare resource across a very wide pool of people. So you're not dealing with the priority people. Now, if you just you know, took, took your CT values back to 30, you prioritize working on the people um, who were most vulnerable. We've seen a very clear picture now for almost a year where the people who get the most severe COVID disease are not people who have competent, healthy immune systems. They're people who've got underlying conditions. They have reasons to, uh, they may be nutritionally deficient. They, they may have comorbidities that, that uh, affect the function of the immune system. We need to be putting that limited resource into those people. And we need to also be shielding those people wherever possible. Okay, folks, at this point, let's pause and allow one of our sponsors an opportunity to share this vital message with you. This episode of Intelligent Medicine is brought to you by Biomega Fish Oil from Biotics Research. For over 40 years, Biotics Research has been providing the highest quality supplements, surpassing industry standards. Biomega Fish Oil contains therapeutic doses of vital omega-3s in the triglyceride form, which is highly bioavailable. Biotics Research ensures maximum purity and freshness by managing their fish oils from catch to capsule, verified by rigorous independent testing. For more information, go to drhoffman.com slash bioticsresearch. That's drhoffman.com slash bioticsresearch for Biomega fish oil. Thanks for listening and thanks for supporting our sponsors. They're what make Intelligent Medicine a continuing free resource to you. And now back to today's guests, Melanie Aldridge and Rob Frakirk. There are specters of uh, a complete breakdown of the NHS, the National Health Service, uh, because of the load. Uh, certain regional hospitals are experiencing uh, a shortage of beds, uh, ICU uh, rooms, uh, and, uh, and the staff of many hospitals in the NHFs uh, utterly demoralized because uh, they've had to work uh, incredible hours under daunting conditions, perhaps without uh, proper PPEs uh, for protection. I mean, that's that's the impression you're getting when, you know, we on the outside look at what's happening in the UK, that there's, you know, there's a real crisis. Well, there, there, there is a crisis, but what isn't being communicated that well is that, you um, it's almost, you know, the lockdowns and the draconian measures have almost become a self-fulfilling prophecy because the NHS is struggling with around 30% of its staff that are off at the moment. And given the size of it, that can amount to over 90,000 people. Hmm. So they've taken the number of beds down. On any, a given day. On a given day, yes. Um, they've taken the number of beds down anyway um, for social distancing. So the figures that we've got appears that there are less beds anyway and then they've got so many staff off yeah. at any one time. That, because that, that, of quarantining. Yes. So either illness um, or too scared to come to work or self-isolating. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, and, so, and so, you know, we've had a situation recently um, that um, one woman in Gloucester, just a citizen, um, who was so frustrated with the lockdown measures, um, you know, 
that took place because I mean before we went into the national lockdown again in January we were all on a tier system and um, she went into um, Gloucester Royal Infirmary which is a very large normally incredibly busy hospital and she took an eight-minute film round all the empty wards lights off hmm. no staff no people wow. no nothing literally a few people sitting in A&E where you would normally have an A&E that was bursting at the seams. That's um, the that's the emergency room um, yep. in, in America. We call it an emergency over here. And um, she um, she posted this on, on YouTube with a certain level of frustration because what she was seeing in the hospital, she didn't film any individuals, it just empty, empty wards. Um, and uh, the police turned up at her door and kind of – took her to the station and cuffs arrested her in the early hours a few days later and there'd been a case there'd been now another three cases wow. of people around the country going into hospitals you filming, mean they, finding sorry, the they, they, they arrested her because she was a whistleblower yes they arrested her she's a citizen who posted wow. a youtube video huh. and they came and beat the door down her husband um opened the door she's still in her in bed in her in her nightdress and uh, yeah, they took her. They took her in on cuffs. So now I think we've had, we know of four cases of arrests like this. And you wonder what the basis is. But apparently, um, they're calling it um, some kind of social misdemeanor. Wow. Um, so, so you know, like you an offence against the social order. <laughs> yes, it's, a, it's on a social order because. But I mean, this is this is what we're seeing, and this is what we're. You know, if you go past the hospitals. Uh, uh, many of them are not looking like they normally do in terms of the car parks and everything else. So you get the mainstream narrative telling you that everything's at breaking point and there are so many people. Mm -hmm. Certainly the London hospitals um, are definitely dealing with cases. But I have a friend, um, one of my uh, practitioner colleagues, her friend is in um, is in the, the A&E of one of the, um, the big London hospitals. And she said, look, we are busy. But we're always busy at this yeah. time of year with respiratory issues. And the people coming in um, with COVID are the ones who we would expect to see yes. anyway who are frail, yes. vulnerable, underlying conditions. Right, right. So well, there is right. a little bit of a schism between what you're getting in the mainstream and then what you're actually seeing sometimes in, in reality. And, and apropos of this, uh, you know, there – and, and you know, we've both, I think, been uh, subject to this, uh, you know, I and my uh, – social media and you, you know, as a big organization that puts out information that uh, sometimes is controversial. Uh, there's been an exponential rise in online censorship, and that's sort of now been fueled uh, by the events uh, in Washington. That's been sort of uh, a causus belli uh, to clamp down on views that are, shall we say, extreme or unpopular or perhaps uh, against uh, the narrative. And you know, uh, I, I won't comment on uh, political extremism. I mean, that's that's one ilk of social communication that um, is highly controversial. But uh, there's also uh, been a clamping down on information that uh, questions the prevailing narrative about COVID-19 uh, and, in fact, um, looks at the vaccine situation from a critical standpoint. So what are you experiencing? Look, a very similar 
situation. This this is a you know we're we're living in a a world that is transitioning, attempting to dra- transition to global governance. So um, when you talk about uh, a situation that that is happening in the UK, um, we certainly through our, our research are seeing mirror kind of uh, um, events occurring in the United States, in Germany. Um, in all sorts of countries. So it's a very, very similar system. And to, to, in some respects, you would expect that given there was a view at the start of this pandemic when WHO declared it on March the 11th, 2020, that there would be a global approach. And they'd been, you know, practicing for such a, a pandemic for some time. So that process, um, moved into action pretty quickly. Um, the question is, do we want to live with that system permanently? Are we happy to live with that degree of censorship? And um, on the on the vaccine front, you know, it, it's it had already been turned into a taboo subject well before this all happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was something that many of us, um, you as a doctor, me as a scientist, uh, Mel as a practitioner, all of us had to watch our p's and q's very very carefully. Um, we've been moving trying to move the debate back into a kind of environment that allows us to to break that taboo for some months now uh, and it's been a reasonably successful um approach we we're getting political support for it not just here but also um internationally phys- physicians for informed consent the us have got behind it so it, it's what we call um it's the manifesto for for vaccine transparency in essence, you know, we live in this extremely polarized world. If you try and um, hide away what's happening, you know, you, you put out a vaccine, a vaccine is always going to create side effects. If you try and hide what's going on with those side effects, or you try and ignore any possible relationship between cause and effect, they're going to be people who find a way of communicating it. Um, if they then try and communicate via social media and find that that's all their social media posts um, with their loved ones yeah. undergoing massive yeah. sort of transverse myalgia symptoms and, and shaking and tremoring and, you know, their grandparents passing away within 24 Seizures hours and- of a vaccine, you try and bury that, it will come back to bite you. And I think to a degree we, we're moving in a direction now where, you know, Interestingly, the the VAERS system, your vaccine adverse event reporting system, is one of the most transparent. We've just released a a 6,000-word article to to try and summarize where we're at. Could you you tell people where that's at? Because that's a really valuable resource. Uh, Yeah, look, it's it's front and center on our website, nhinternational.org. It's our main uh, feature. We've called it you know, um, we, we, the, the whole discussion is around the brave new world of, of COVID vaccines. And um, we've uh, I, I've picked a few choice quotes from Aldous Huxley, who actually hails from from down the, or did hail from just down the road from where our office is. Um, so he, he was born and brought up around Godalming, which is just a stone's throw from, from where we're talking to you right now. But of course, he, he talks about this dystopian and utopian world in the brave new world and how, you know, it, it is possible to escape it and still have freedom. And I, I, I think that that's the debate that we're in at the moment. If you try and restrict all the communication on it, you are moving 
to a place where medical freedom no longer occurs, where you're moving into this coercive environment where not only are governments and health authorities trying to force you to, to do something, you've also somehow empowered many members of the community to essentially marginalize you if you and stigmatize you mm -hmm. if you decide that you're not going to be vaccinated. Now, that is a really interesting thing to do if it was based on proper scientific fact. The, the difficulty right now that they have with it is that you'll be aware, Ron, that, that none of the data so far from um, phase one, two, three clinical trials or any of the data from post-marketing surveillance of the three main front-runner COVID vaccines, Moderna, Pfizer, and AstraZeneca, show any data that tells us that transmission risk mm -hmm. is reduced. So in many respects, you're looking at a, a vaccine that is much more like prophylaxis. It's a preventative right. treatment to stop you having severe COVID disease if you're in a vulnerable category. Right. Now, I think the, the misconception that some people have is that the vaccine is the solution uh, and that it will end the pandemic. It, you know, the, the, the virus will vanish because uh, people have developed sufficient herd immunity uh, and that it, the, the, you know, it'll just disappear of its own accord because it won't have any targets. But it's definitely not a savior vaccine. And even the authorities have said that lockdowns continue, mask wearing continues, you know, and no, nothing nothing changes as far as, um, you know, the draconian measures on our rights and freedoms with the vaccine or not. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it potentially could change if, if suddenly, you know, uh, it all starts to come together and work. Mm -hmm. Now, the, the, the bottom line is that when you look at informed We're, we're consent, not saying it, it will and we're not saying it won't. It just there is the prospect uh, that uh, the vaccine uh while helping people, I mean, it's, I, there's, I think there's, there's evidence that it may attenuate the severity of the infection, but it Correct. there's not there's let, let's put this there's sketchy evidence on whether it reduces transmissibility, and it probably doesn't. Correct, and and the bottom line is that in that context, there is a problem strategically if you put all your eggs in one basket. So let let me give you two scenarios. One is that um, we start to see a change in the effectiveness of the vaccine because of these new variants. So mm -hmm. the South African scientists are already saying, you know, guys, we're going to have to revisit the whole um, vaccine uh, technology right. because the particular genetic sequences we built these on, bear in mind these are computer-generated consensus sequences. They are things that, that happen on a computer more than in real life. That the, the RNA in real life is... A, a changing, you know, moving feast all mm -hmm. the time. So we may now have mutations that are so significantly different that the um, the, the, the genetic sequences on which the um, both the mRNA and the genetic sequence of the antigen from the spike protein that the AstraZeneca vaccine is based on will not deliver particular uh, effects. The second angle is what happens if we start to see, you know, vaccine-induced hypersensitivity or mm -hmm. um, pathogenic priming, call it what you like, um, antibody-dependent. Antigen uh, potentiation. Uh, I mean, I've heard various yeah. terms applied to yeah. it, you yeah. know. Antibody-dependent uh, enhancement of disease. Mm -hmm. So this, this basically means that, that if you've either been previously infected 
or you've had a vaccine. There, there, there are two different mechanisms. Your, your neutralizing antibodies no longer neutralize. That can change over time. The, there are only, if you imagine the thousands of viruses that, that are out there, there are only 40 viruses that's ever been discovered with. And they happen to include things like dengue, HIV, and guess what? Coronaviruses. Mm-hmm. So with SARS and MERS, that was actually one of the greatest problems. It was an obstacle to, to development of a vaccine, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and they saw it initially in animal studies. Um, the bottom line is it clearly isn't um, an absolute blinder of a problem. Otherwise, it would have been picked up early. Right. But let's remember that let's just take the Pfizer vaccine. Everyone knows the figure, 44,000 people in the trial. Of those, half of them got the vaccine. So 22,000 had mm-hmm. the vaccine. But in that group, only 170 of them were exposed to the, right. to the virus. So 170 people out of 44,000 is not enough right. to determine a pattern of pathogenic priming in a subgroup of the population. We so would have to add six zeros to that number to rest assured that there would not be this phenomenon. And, and, and I'm not saying that people will get this. It, we may dodge a bullet on this, but uh, still, right. I think we have to say that there's some questions unanswered about uh, the long-term uh, effects of and, the vaccine. Right. And there, there are top um, immunologists writing in journals like Nature and the Journal of Infectious Diseases that you shouldn't sniff at saying, guys, this could be a real problem. They're still saying it. And the difficulty we all have is that, you know, we're we're marching on essentially in the knowledge that this may be a problem, but not even communicating it to the public Mm -hmm. when, in fact, the public is effectively acting as the guinea pig to determine whether or not there will be, you know, vaccine uh, enhancement down the track. I think we have to really hope and pray that we dodge this bullet, given the fact that, if you look at who's been tested first, we're looking at all our health professionals, our frontline, mm-hmm. the military, the police. I mean, if if this does end up being an issue, um, it it could really, you know, have some serious knock-on effects. Yeah, it could uh, really have national security implications. It could have productivity implications. Uh you know, we have to be aware of that uh, possibility. Well, but look, I think that there, there's a lot of confirmation bias around. Um, making the vaccine campaign a success. I think people are so dispirited from the lockdown, from the dislocation, from the fear uh, that they're looking to this as, uh, you know, the ray of uh, sunshine on the horizon uh, that may deliver us. That's where where I'm trying to get you. So so I've I've posed two potential problems that could be game changers in terms of the vaccine. And I'm posing the kind of risk this this is a these are kind of risk decisions that major corporations and governments normally take every day of the week and you what you try and do is you manage that risk and you manage that risk by not having all your eggs in one basket and you have other baskets now the problem here is that we're not being informed the public is not being informed of the other available baskets and the other available baskets in my view are, are, are fundamentally twofold one is a complete sort of dietary and lifestyle-based approach to make sure that individuals are as healthy as possible. If they have underlying disease, they've got strategies Mm -hmm. to try and reduce the risk of those disease, do exactly what the integrative medicine community has been doing for many years. The second part of that 
strategy is what can you take out of the your medicine chest to deliver other forms of prophylaxis and and this is where you start to realize and, and it's a very positive thing on the 14th of january the nih because of what paul marrick and pierre corey and others have done in the senate hearing and also directly in their meetings with the nih they've got the nih to change its position on ivermectin the anti-parasitic mm -hmm. drug ivermectin and said guys it's okay to use it off-label um, for this purpose and prophylaxis with ivermectin as well as treatment with with ivermectin is cheap as chips and it works it is it is the closest thing it, it kind of leaves hydroxychloroquine in its wake hmm. it may act also as an ana force so it works really well alongside other nutrients and of course um, the frontline COVID-19 critical care alliance that, that Corey and, and, and Marek work with a group of emergency doctors in in, in the U.S. And Paul Merrick is, is from the, U, the U.S. He's a Virginia-based physician in Norfolk, all, Virginia. This is all happening your side. Uh, Paul's yeah. actually originally African, but, yeah, um, yeah, but he's based, based, in, the based in the U.S. Right. But but they have produced the eye, eye mask protocol that where ivermectin is the central component, but right. it has vitamin C, vitamin D, zinc, melatonin as part of the synergistic complement of nutrients that work on quelling inflammation, you know, managing cytokine storms. Um, so you've got a prevention protocol. And, and that, in my mind, is the other side. You know, if you're going to offer someone informed consent and say, look, we and particularly if you know that, that with these new variants, the vaccine might become less effective. The advantage of having a secondary egg in your basket is that you've got one that responds to any kind of variant because mm -hmm. it's a much mm -hmm. more Generalized, a generalized approach. Yeah. All right. Yeah. You've, you've said a mouthful there, and, and I want to explore those uh, two themes yeah. when we return. Uh, number one, uh, lifestyle. Uh, and look, we're not here to say that, uh, you know, perfect lifestyle is a is a infallible bulwark against COVID-19. It's a serious virus, but it certainly plays a major role in modulating the severity of the infection and also some of these uh, relatively low-cost uh, innovative strategies uh, that have been to some extent suppressed and poo-pooed. Uh, when we return, uh, more of our discussion uh, with uh, Rob Frickirk and uh, Melanie Aldridge of um, the uh, Alliance for Natural Health International uh, coming to us from the UK. I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman and this is the Intelligent Medicine Podcast.